uh, read the chapter, maybe, uh, maybe it's useful just to have a little bit of a quiz. This is probably a really bad idea. Uh, but does anyone remember anything, anything at all, about uh, the first 16 chapters of Leviticus that, if you were around uh, then last year, does anyone remember anything? Uh, you're allowed to cheat. Can you remember anything in the first 16 chapters? Lots of rules, yeah, about sacrifices. Does anyone remember how many sacrifices there were? Five? Oh, wow, that's some good effort, yeah. Does anyone remember what they were? Yeah. There was, there was the burnt offering that was you know, totally consumed. There was, there was the one to do with biscuits. Remember that one? The baking. There was the... That's right. The grain offering. Uh, there was a peace, peace offering, that, which was a meal, a meal kind of thing. There was the sin offering, that was to do with sin. There was a guilt offering, that was kind of to do with stealing from God. Anyone remember anything else after that? Washing, yeah, there was Leviticus 15. What? Atonement, the Day of Atonement, that's right. That was the last chapter, chapter 16. So I think we had the priests as well. So there's a lot of things. It's a relief that, uh, that so many things were remembered. And, and we're sort of leaving those things behind this morning and moving on, as Marty said, to the second half of Leviticus. And we're going to read Leviticus uh, chapter 17. Uh, so we'll read the whole chapter. Uh, and this is what it says. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to Aaron and his sons uh, and to all the Israelites and say to them, this is what the Lord had commanded, uh, has commanded. Any Israelite who sacrifices an ox, a lamb or a goat in the camp or outside of it, instead of bringing it to the entrance to the tent of meeting to present it as an offering to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, that man shall be considered guilty of bloodshed. He has shed blood and must be cut off from his people. This is so the Israelites will bring to the Lord the sacrifices they are now making in the open fields. They must bring them to the priest, that is, to the Lord, at the entrance to the tent of meeting and sacrifice them as fellowship offerings. The priest is to sprinkle the blood against the altar of the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting and burn the fat as an aroma pleasing to the Lord. They must no longer offer any of their sacrifices to the goat idols to whom they prostitute themselves. This is to be a lasting ordinance for them and for the generations to come. Say to them, any Israelite or any alien living among them who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the entrance to the tent of meeting to sacrifice it to the Lord, that man must be cut off from his people. Any Israelite or alien living among them who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from his people. For the life of a creature is in the blood and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Therefore I say to the Israelites, none of you may eat blood, nor may any alien living among you eat blood. Any Israelite or any alien living among you who hunts any animal or bird uh, that may be eaten must drain out the blood and cover it with earth, because the life of every creature is in its blood. That is why I have said to the Israelites, You must not eat the blood of any creature because the life of every creature is in its blood. Uh, Anyone who eats, it must be cut off. Anyone whether native-born or alien who eats anything found dead or torn by wild animals must wash his clothes and bathe with water and he will be ceremonially unclean till evening. Then he will be clean. But if he does not wash his clothes and bathe himself, 
he will be held responsible. Well, no doubt you'll, uh, you will have picked up uh, as we read through that, there are still some similarities with the first 16 chapters uh, of Leviticus. Uh, there's still kind of blood, there's still some stuff about sacrifices. Uh, but, but as this, uh, this second half of Leviticus pushes on, I suppose, toward the end, we start to encounter uh, a whole series of laws about life and over the next couple of months, uh, I suppose, we're going to be looking at those, travelling through them and trying to understand them and trying to understand, well, what do they mean for us this side of the cross? Now that Jesus has uh, come to earth, now that he's, he's uh, put the law to death, so to speak, uh, now that he's risen from the dead, now that he's king, what do we do with this stuff? How do we understand it? The second half uh, of Leviticus is, is actually really practical. Uh, there's stuff uh, about sex, there's stuff about just punishment, uh, there's things about leadership, about holidays, uh, and, and, there's, and there's lots of other stuff as well. And over the next uh, few weeks or so, we're going to be uh, trying to wrestle with those and trying to understand what this kind of really visual world of Leviticus, what that has to say about how we live life in the presence of God uh, today. And today's chapter, which really kicks that off, is made up of two regulations. Uh, there's one uh, about where people, where people can offer sacrifices, uh, and there's one about eating meat with the blood in it. So the first regulation then is uh, about where to make sacrifices and you can find that in the first uh, nine verses or so of the chapter. Uh, verse 3 and 4 summarise what's going on pretty well. They say, Any Israelite who sacrifices an ox, a lamb or a goat in the camp or outside of it, instead of bringing it to the entrance to the tent of meeting to present it as an offering to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, that man shall be considered guilty of bloodshed. He has shed blood and must be cut off from his people. Right, so the idea is you've got to sacrifice uh, at the temple, otherwise you'll be cut off uh, from God's people. If you were to read through the Bible from uh, Genesis up to this point, you'll see that uh, right from the very beginning, right from the moment when Adam and Eve rejected God and, and were thrown out of God's presence, uh, right from that moment people kind of seem to understand that sacrifice was important, that they'd done something against God, they'd rejected God and that somehow sacrifice was bound up in, in finding a way back to God. Uh, and one of the ways that worked out was that people would offer sacrifices. So if you read through Genesis, for instance, you know, people will just... You know, they're out in the field and something happens and they offer a sacrifice to God. Uh, but now, God in the first half of Leviticus has made provisions for that to happen in one place. He's given the people the tabernacle, which was a giant tent. Uh, it was the kind of the precursor to the temple. Uh, and God had given them the tabernacle, this tent, as a place where the sacrifices to be, were to be made. He'd given them the priests and he'd given them all these... Uh, details about the five different kinds of sacrifices that we kind of looked at briefly before. Uh, God did that not to make people's lives difficult uh, and complicated. He did that because in those sacrifices, in that tabernacle, in the priesthood, there were, there were pictures of the gospel. They, they kind of unpacked to people the shape of what God was going to do in Jesus. And now having laid all those regulations out, having kind of illustrated to people what he was going to do through Jesus, God says to these people, don't offer 
sacrifices anywhere else. This is the place where you're supposed to do it. This is how you're supposed to do it because it's, it's illustrating the gospel. So don't do it anywhere else. The, uh, the issue behind this command is not simply a uniformity. Verse 7 uh, explains what the issue really was. It says in verse 7, they must no longer offer any of their sacrifices to the goat idols to whom they prostitute themselves. This is to be a lasting ordinance for them uh, and for the generations to come. So here's the scenario, right? God's given these people the, the, the temple, the tabernacle, as a symbol of his presence. He's given them the priest to minister on their behalf. He's given them the sacrifices, which picture the way that uh, they need to normalise, their relationship with God needs to be normalised and, and sort of healed. Uh, back in chapter 9, the glory of the Lord has appeared to the people of God. Uh, God was doing amazing things among these people. He wasn't just showing them pictures of what was to come, but he was already beginning to do amazing things. He appeared to them. His glory appeared to them. And in view of all those realities in the first half of the book, what's really incredible about Leviticus chapter 17 is that it is there at all, that it needs to be said. God's just given these people amazing pictures of the gospel, what he's going to do, his glory has appeared to them and then he has to say to them, and by the way, don't keep offering sacrifices to goat idols in the desert. Look at verse 7 again. They must no longer offer any of their sacrifices to the goat idols to whom they prostitute themselves. The expression uh, prostitute themselves uh, I think really kind of begins to show what is actually at stake here. Uh, other versions aren't quite so polite. They translate it whore after other gods. The picture uh, is not of a person uh, is not of a person who goes after other gods being like a like one who visits a, a prostitute. That's not the picture that is being conjured up here. The picture is of a person going after other gods, they're like a person who goes and sells themselves as, as a prostitute. This is the picture. The picture is of God as a faithful, loving husband uh, and his wife, us, being so desperately unhappy with him that we betray him and we sell ourselves as prostitutes. We sell ourselves to other gods. We, we sell ourselves ultimately to something that doesn't love us and which uses us and spits us out the other side. This chapter puts before us a really, I think, quite confronting and quite disturbing reality a reality which is as real for us today as it was for the people in the days of Leviticus. That is, people who've received tremendous kindness from God, people who've received tremendous grace from God, can so easily betray him by something as trivial and as ridiculous and as silly as a goat idol or anything else for that matter. The, the, the danger for us is that God shows us, offers to us not just uh, his kindness in a series of complicated uh, rituals and sacrifices. He offers his kindness and his love to us in the Gospel, in Jesus and his own Son offered up to death for us. And the danger is that we, 
we turn our back on that, that we give up a loving marriage, so to speak, and we trade it in for a spiritual one-night stand. Maybe that seems a little bit uh, too abstract, a little bit too far-fetched maybe. But just, just think about it for a moment. You know, uh, I think a lot of us, as we look back on Leviticus, we think, man, I'm glad, uh, I'm glad we don't have to do that. What, you know, I'm glad we don't have to go through all these sacrifices. It would just be really inconvenient, actually. It would be really annoying. You know, there's quite serious demands on your money because you have to buy these sacrifices, quite serious demands on your time. It's going to take a lot of time to offer up all these different sacrifices. But when we think like that, what does that actually say about how much we love God? You know? Okay, we don't have to do those things anymore, but we still have that sentiment, don't we, of inconvenience. What's more, when you think about it in the light of what Jesus calls us to, that is to offer up our very lives, our whole selves in following him, well, a few cows and a few sacrifices here and there seems actually like a pretty easy life, doesn't it? What's a few cows and a few sheep compared to the absolute claim on your life, 24-7, your motives, your thoughts, your passions, your your loves, your desires, your interests. Following Jesus too often looks really hard, doesn't it? Just like the sacrificial system would have looked hard to, to the people in the days of Leviticus. And so what do we do? We offer up a few sacrifices to some gods closer to home. We offer up our sacrifices to, the, to our work in the hope that maybe there we'll find love. We offer up our, our sacrifices to family or, or, or to our homes or, or to our relaxation or to ourselves. We offer up our sacrifices to sexual appetites. We offer up our sacrifices to our stomachs. Here's an interesting one that I was struck by yesterday. We offer up our sacrifices to novelty. A few weeks ago someone said something fascinating and, and really quite challenging. They said... All of life is a rut, you know, you can't escape that, you know. Breakfast, work, lunch, work, dinner, recreation, sleep, breakfast. It's, all of life is a rut, you know. The, the difference is whether it's a good rut or a bad rut. And as I thought about that yesterday as I was, as I was driving to Woolworths, I suddenly thought to myself, why is that such a challenging concept? It's such a challenging concept because I, and I think many of us, idolise novelty, don't we? We we idolise the new thing. We don't want to be in a rut because we we always want something new. And here's here's the challenge. The challenge is not just to not idolise and to worship novelty. The challenge is to be thankful for the constancy of our lives that God's given us. Wow. Bang. How easy is it to offer up our sacrifices to more convenient gods because real sacrifice to the real God of heaven and earth just seems far too difficult. We do it because 
It's difficult, we do it also because we think we'll end up happy and free. And the truth is, God is saying we don't end up happy and free, we end up having prostituted ourselves, having sold ourselves, having sold our very selves, who we are, to something who doesn't love us and we end up thrown out the next day. You see, the Bible always tells us that the choice is not between loving and serving God and loving and serving nothing. Now, the Bible always says that the choice is between loving and serving God and loving and serving everything and anything else. A great warning sign, I think, of, uh, of going down that track is the sentiment, if I just get this one thing, I'll be happy. If I just get the new computer, my life will be happy. If I just get uh, the new game, my life will be happy. If I just get uh, this new extension on my house finished, uh, I'll be happy. If I just uh, could get married, I'd be happy. If I could just have kids, uh, I'd be happy. Whenever we find ourselves looking over the fence and saying, this one thing is the source, that will be the source of my happiness, Whenever we find ourselves thinking like that, we know we're in a danger zone. But I think it's, uh, I think it's useful in just thinking through some of the implications of this. Uh, I think it's useful to, tr- to try and work through how this reality works out in the life of someone who is a genuine Christian and how this reality works out in the life of someone who isn't actually a Christian. You see... It's not that the Christian, the one who's really following Jesus, it's not that, that that person is impeccably faithful and never betrays God in any way, right? So it, while the person who, who isn't a Christian, they are kind of a hopeless failure. That's not the, the kind of the main distinction. Both the, the, the true Christian and, and the person who isn't following Jesus, both people sell themselves to idols. Uh, Both of them sell their their hearts and their lives to something other than God. I think that the extent to which Christians do that diminishes over time as they mature in their faith, as God works in their lives. But the great distinction isn't that one sells themselves to idols and the other doesn't. The great distinction is this. It's that the person who isn't following Jesus just goes on selling themselves day after day. It's, it's like a one spiritual one-night stand after another. They might claim to be, to be following Jesus, they might even claim to be a Christian, they might turn up to church every week, but they just keep selling themselves and when they're challenged by that thought, instead of repenting, instead of acknowledging it, instead of confessing it to God and seeking forgiveness and, and the power to change, instead of confronting it, they bury the thought as deep as they can. On the other hand, the person who really is following Jesus, when they realise what they've done, when they realise that they've cheated on God, they're disgusted and they turn to God, they repent and they ask forgiveness and they ask for transformation. It's not that the true Christian never stuffs up. It's not that the true Christian never cheats on God. It's that when they do, and when they realise it, they turn back to him. And here's, here's the greater miracle. 
after having cheated on God, after having sold themselves as a spiritual prostitute, God welcomes them back. They've been on a spiritual one-night stand, but God forgives them because he is merciful. Well, that was what the first half of Leviticus was about, wasn't it? It was about how do you get back from having cheated on God. So the first half of this chapter of Leviticus 17 is about, just that, it's about cheating on God. But having dealt with where sacrifices should take place, the rest of the chapter moves on to talk about regulations about eating meat with blood in it. Verse 10 maybe crystallises it the best. It says there, any Israelite, any Israelite or any alien living among them who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from his people. Right, so anyone who eats blood, they're going to be cut off. Uh, the rest of the chapter goes on to explain the details of that. Uh, verse 13 and 14 explain that if you were, uh, had gone out and you hunted an animal, then you had to let its blood drain away before you could eat it. You had to let its blood drain away and then you actually had to bury the blood uh, in the ground. And any person who didn't do that, any person who just killed the animal, ate it without letting the blood drain out, that person would be cut off. Cut off from the people of God and from the presence of God, uh, so to speak. Verses uh, 15 and 16 then is about eating uh, anything found dead or torn by animals. So the person who ate um, uh, that kind of meat that they found that had already been killed, that person was unclean and they had to wash themselves and they had to uh, uh, do that before they could come back uh, into the camp of God's people. Now the regulations in, uh, in verse 15 and 16 about these wild animals being torn up and, and they might seem a little bit disconnected uh, to the whole eating meat with blood in it thing but it makes sense to see that they're actually, uh, they are actually connected uh, and most likely the issue was that if you came across an animal that had already been killed right, in the wild, the blood would already have begun to kind of uh, settle in the meat, it would have begun to coagulate. So if you then sort of took that animal home uh, and ate it, you'd, you'd be eating blood, right? So you didn't, because you didn't have the opportunity to, to let the blood drain out, then, uh, then you had to go through this uh, ceremony of cleansing. But here's the, the, the kind of the more important question, I suppose. Why did God have a problem uh, with the people eating meat with blood in it? And I guess, does God still have a problem with that? Uh, verse 11 explains what the issue was. Verse 11, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. So here's the problem. Getting back to basics, every one of us has uh, rejected God and turned away from God in one way or another. We saw that, didn't we, when we looked at cheating on God. God made us, God loved us and yet we sell ourselves. The cost of that, the cost of selling ourselves and selling out God is, is our life. For God to be just, for God to be a just God, he has to punish our sin, our, our rejection of him uh, with a life. 
In the days of Leviticus, that thought, that reality was drummed into people through the sacrificial system. Blood was spilled over here, blood was spilled over there, blood was kind of spilled everywhere and the verse, this verse is saying the point of all that blood was to say you've sinned against God and the only way back is through a life being taken. That was the message because blood symbolised God taking a life. Blood symbolised the life of the animal. If you take the animal's blood, well, metaphorically speaking, well, in reality too, you take its life. If you get rid of the blood, it's dead. So, so throwing this blood around with kind of abandon was a way of saying, you sinned, the way you get back to me because you've sinned is through blood, through a life being, being taken. God was saying to the people, the meat is yours, you know, eat as much meat as you want. But the blood, the life, that belongs to me to make atonement for you. If a person then was to come along and to take that blood to eat that meat with the blood still in it, effectively what they would be doing is despising God's means of salvation. That's why there are different consequences for the person who kills the animal themselves and then eats the blood. That person gets cut off, right? But the person who finds the wild animal and and might accidentally eat blood uh, when they eat that animal because they can't help it, there's already blood sort of begun to settle in the meat. Well... That person just had to wash themselves. The issue is about despising God's means of salvation. It's not, you see, the issue was never about eating meat with the blood still in it. That was never the issue. And this side of the cross, it's still not the issue. The issue was despising God's means of salvation, to eat the blood of the animals that God had provided to make atonement for sin, to eat that blood was to eat what God had given to release people from the penalty of their sin. And this side of the cross, that remains the same. You can eat uh, as much rare meat as you like, if you want to do that, if you like carpaccio, go for it. that, that's, that's great. The issue is not eating meat with the blood still in it. The issue is despising God's salvation in Jesus Christ. Ultimately, God's salvation for those people in Leviticus and for people today was not through the blood of sheep and bulls. It was through the blood of his own son. It was through the life of his own son. And the danger for us on this side of the cross is not that we eat meat with blood in it, but that we despise the life and the death of God's Son. I think there are lots of ways, really, that you can despise what God has done in Christ. Uh, but I, I just want to outline really quickly three ways, I think, which are kind of maybe the, the main ways. The most obvious way, I suppose, to despise God's salvation in Jesus is to deny it, isn't it, or, or to reject it, to, to disbelieve it, to say, I don't think that ever happened. Uh, that's kind of the most obvious way to despise God's salvation in Jesus. 
Another way to despise God's salvation in Jesus is to ignore Jesus and to look somewhere else. You know, to say, well, you know, you might believe that, uh, but you know, I think that this is the way to get back to God. I, uh, you know, uh, so for instance, Buddhists and and Muslims and Jews and New Age people and and anyone else really who looks for any way other than Jesus despises what God has done in Christ. Similarly, people who who look to themselves, who who look to their own goodness or or more often who look to their own lack of badness, those people also uh, end up really despising what God has done in Christ. So you can despise God's salvation in Jesus by denying it, you can despise God's salvation in Jesus by ignoring it and looking somewhere else. But the third way, and I think the most sinister way and, and probably the most distressing way that you can despise God's salvation in Jesus is to believe it, right, to accept it intellectually, but then to go on trying to hold on to sin. Uh, in fact, the book of Hebrews is, is really all about that, I think. Uh, it's all about uh, kind of intellectually assenting to what God has said uh, in the Gospel, in Jesus, and then trying to hold on to sin in one way or another. The writer of Hebrews uh, says this in chapter 10, If we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgement and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses uh, died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot and who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? Do you see what the writer of Hebrews is saying? He's saying it was bad to despise God's salvation in the Old Testament. It's much worse to do it now that it's been shown for all its glory through his son dying on the cross. The message of Hebrews and the message of Leviticus is that people who despise God's salvation will ultimately be cut off from God. But if that's uh, what it looks like to despise God's salvation, then I guess it's useful just to think briefly as well about what it looks like not to despise it. Right? If there are three ways that you can despise God's salvation, well, what does it look like to embrace it? What does it look like to receive it really and truly? The answer to that question, I think, may be the best place to look, is to look at one of the most bizarre things that Jesus ever said, uh, and that's in John chapter 6. So if you've got your Bible, turn to, to John chapter 6. What Jesus says here is bizarre for us, I think, because we don't understand uh, uh, Leviticus and the Old Testament uh, well. But I I think, as we'll see, against the background uh, of that, it makes tremendous sense. So John chapter 6, verse 53 of John chapter 6. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood... You have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. 
For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. Jesus is speaking against here against the background of Leviticus and I think in, at least in part against the background of Leviticus chapter 17 and he's saying, what he's saying is I am going to die as a sacrifice and it won't, it won't just be a sacrifice where it's given to God and that's it. This is a sacrifice in which you can share What Jesus is saying in John chapter 6 against the background of Leviticus 17 is absolutely astonishing. In Leviticus 17 God says, do not under any circumstances eat the blood which I've given to you for atonement. Because in the blood of the animal is its life. And in John chapter 6 Jesus says, unless you eat my blood, eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life. Jesus isn't talking about actually eating his blood. He's not talking either about uh, the Lord's Supper or communion or, or whatever you want to call it. What Jesus was saying was this. Against that pictorial, visual background of Leviticus 17, he's saying, if you trust and follow me, that's what he's saying, if you trust and follow me, my life given up, is your life given up? More than that, my life is your life. You live through me. That's how we live. That's where what becomes the source of our life. His life was forfeited in our place for our sins. His life, which he now lives in glory to the honour of his Father, his life becomes our life. Maybe as I uh, spoke before about despising uh, the gospel, some of you thought to yourself, that's me, you know. That's, uh, I find that in myself sometimes. Maybe you think, I've despised God's salvation. I've, I've disbelieved it. I've doubted it. I've, I've ignored it. I've looked to other things instead of to Jesus. You know, there have been, there have been times when I've cheated on God. There have been times when I've tried to... to to hold on to Christ and hold on to my sin. See, even in the lives of people who truly love Jesus and who call out to God, even in the lives of those people, there will still be remnants of these realities. But the difference is, the difference is that the person who really loves Jesus and truly trusts in him at the end of the day keeps going back to him They keep going back to the gospel. They keep casting themselves on Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. They keep looking to his death as a death in place of their death. They keep looking to Jesus for life, for new life, for a new heart, for new consciousness, for a new mind, to be a new creation. They keep looking back to the cross and they keep hungering 
and thirsting for righteousness. They keep feasting on Jesus. Not just on, on what he's done but on who he continues to be. In Leviticus uh, 17, the great crime was to take what belonged to God and in doing so to despise it. In our day, the great crime is to not take what God freely gives us and in doing that, to despise it. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, the realities of this chapter are, are confronting because all of us, uh, every single one of us, in one way or another, has cheated on you. We've, Lord, you've, you've loved us, you've made us, you've made a world for us to live in, you've sent your Son to redeem us, uh, and yet all of us, Lord, in one way or another, have, have sold ourselves, we've betrayed you, we've, we've prostituted ourselves to things other than you, to other people, to inanimate things. Lord, we've despised your salvation, Lord, by doubting it or ignoring it or by trying to hold on to our sin. And Lord, all we can do is to come back again to the cross and to come back again to Jesus. And Father, we want to confess what we've done and we want to acknowledge our wayward hearts and we want to plead with you that you would again show kindness and mercy to us in your, in your Son. Lord, we pray that you would count his death as our death and Lord, we ask that you would make his life our life, that his power and his might might fuel us to live for him and to serve him and to love him. Lord, we ask that not simply for our own sake but so that you would get from us the glory that you deserve. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.